today we're going to be talking about, uh, in 1 John 5, regeneration. Um, and I'm going to ex- explain all that. Um, but before we go into 1 John 5, let me pray and then we'll read the text and then we'll, and then we'll jump in. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. And God, I, uh, I thank you for an opportunity that you've given me to be able to preach your word. Uh, it's, a, it's a major responsibility that if anyone has um, been given this opportunity by you to stand up, and preach your word, God, that they should take seriously. And Lord, I, uh, I know the weight of it. And I, I also know that um, without your spirit being here, then this is really for nothing. Without your help, then there's no way that I can accomplish this task. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and you would give me all the words that I need to speak this morning. I pray that you would lead me into truth. And away from error, I pray that you would help me say all the things that would be the most helpful for all of us this morning and the things that wouldn't, that I would not say those. I pray for all of my friends here this morning. I pray that you would give them receptive hearts, attentive ears. God, that you would um, open their eyes to new truths maybe they've never heard of or seen in your word. God, that they wouldn't just take these things as knowledge and let them be an end of, them, of, of itself. But God, they would take the knowledge they learn and that it would drive them to Jesus and hope in the gospel. And that it would drive them to a deeper walk with Christ and a deeper love of the cross of Christ. So be with us now as we study God. And I pray that um, as your word goes forth that it wouldn't return void. But that it would drive down deep into our hearts. And start sprouting up, God, growth in our lives. And that we would see evidences of your grace because of your word. I love you and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in 1 John 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of these little yellow-green Bibles underneath you and, and flip there. It's kind of towards the back. These are New Testaments. Go ahead and grab that um, and take that with you. Take it home with you. Also, if you have a Bible and you know, have a friend that needs a Bible, take that with you and go give it to them. We, we, give, we get those things to give them away, so please take one. But we're going to be in 1 John 5. I'm going to read the text and then we'll jump in. 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to do my best to read it all the way through and not make comments. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, I've said this many times. Um, John, as he writes, is not like Paul. Paul just kind of takes us on a straight line. John uses a lot of thoughts and phrases and words and and very circular writing. So I want to help you see those before we even get started. Just how he repeats himself and how he brings those things in. Look at the repetition here. Um, There's a few things. In 5.1, everyone who believes, you see the word believe, and then he rounds it out in 5.5, except the one who believes. So you can see he's he's kind of bookending this text with belief in verse 1 and verse 5. And you'll also see the very end of 4, our faith. 
That's all the same Greek word. Faith and believe. That's all the same word. Faith is the noun. Believe is the verb. So you can see he's already using that idea three times. Um, another place that you're going to, another thing you're going to see kind of repeated here is in verse one, where he says, has been born of God. And then you're going to see it in four again. Whoever has been born of God. So he's, he's taken the, and he's been really, this is, First John um, is really kind of the clearest letter in the New Testament about this idea of being born of God. The theological word is regeneration. I'm going to define that soon. But this is kind of an important thing as we're looking at this text, understanding what it means to be born of God. Like John 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and says, what must I do to be born again? Or what must I do to be saved? He says, you must be born again. It's the same idea, being born of God. There's another thing. There's another uh, phrase or word that's kind of repeated here, and you're going to see it uh, picking up in four. Um, for everyone who's been born of God, here it is, overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. In verse 5, who is it that overcomes? And so this idea of overcoming is repeated. All, anytime you see repetition in verses, those are key things that you need to say, all right, that's important. God's showing me something here. I need to pay attention and let those things kind of build out to me and look at these five verses and see what he's saying. So that's what we're doing today. Um, we're going to look at these repetitions, and this is the case almost in every, ver- in every verse you read. What's the big ideas? And then as I see those big ideas, how's he explaining it? Well, today, being born of God is kind of this big idea, regeneration. And so our idea today, or our big thought is regeneration and how regeneration or being regenerated or being born of God should lead us into love. Um, and there's three, three actions of regeneration I want us to see today. Now... Um, I'm, I'm careful to not use the word evidence. And let me, let me tell you why, and I know this kind of seems picky, but let me explain. In 1 John 5.13, kind of the, the reason why John wrote, he's told us. Um, he says, I write these things to you that you may believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. And so we know that this letter is written to Christians primarily to let them, as they look at their life, be able to know whether they are saved. Let them know, am I a child of God? Am I a child of God? And as we've gone through 1 John, he's given us three tests that we can know. And you should know them by now. One is righteousness. The fact that if you are entrenched in sin and have no care for, um, for killing sin in your life and you just want to sin all the time, well, that's an evidence. The next one is truth. You should have real theological distinctions. You should know some things about God. And if you just don't care about truth and you're like, whatever, then that's an evidence that you might not know him. And the last one is love. As Christians... Our lives should be characterized of having a love for God and a love for other people, Christians and not. And these three things, he just kind of, he, he does two time, separate times, and we know that those things. And so, as we've been reading First John, he's been saying, all right, if you have those three things, the tests, if you have, if you're... If you have those things in your life, well, that's giving evidence to you. I, I'm wanting to know if I'm a child of God. I'm reading First John. He says these things should be present. Okay, that's giving me evidence. I feel like, and that's why he says that you may know. I, I need to know whether I'm in. All right. This text is a little bit different. That's evidence. What I want you to see here is not evidences of regeneration, evidences of the fact that you're a child of God, but this is actions. This is I'm wondering, this is not, I'm wondering if I'm a child of God. This is, now that you're a child of God, now that you know you are a child of God, these actions must be present. These actions have to be happening in your life. And it's not like, and if they're not, then, I'm not doing that. I'm not going down that road with you. I'm not, we've already gone down that road in 1 John 2.19. I'm saying, alright, you, as a believer, 
You have evidence. I know that I am. Now I'm going to look at this text and I'm going to say, based on the fact that I know I am, what are some actions that I want to have in my life? What are some actions? So this is, this is actions of regeneration. This is not evidences. All right, now let me define regeneration really fast for you, and then we're going to jump in. Systematic theology, Wayne Grudem says that this is a, a secret act of God where God imparts to us spiritual life. He imparts to us spiritual life. Um, and some distinctions about regeneration is that it's, this is totally a work of God, that God in His sovereignty and in His grace reaches into your heart and imparts this thing to you. Um, and we're going to talk about why that's important. It's, it's a mystery. It's kind of a mysterious thing. It's, it's, it's not necessarily an a easy thing to distinguish and know. Um, the next thing is that it precedes saving faith, which means He regenerates you. And when he regenerates you, you put your faith in him. It's not like some delayed thing. It's not like, well, he regenerated me last month. You know, about three months from now, I'm going to have faith. It's, it's a simultaneous event, or simultaneous, however you want to say it. But it's, it's regeneration faith. Like they happen at the same time. Regeneration faith. I snap my fingers. I'm rubbing my fingers together, but you hear the snap. It's, it's all together. It's regeneration faith. But if we're going to talk about sequential order... We're going to say regeneration happens and then faith. But they happen simultaneously. All right? The next thing is that when regeneration happens, and this is where I'm talking about today, when regeneration happens, it always brings real results. It always brings real results in your life. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Those real results that are in our lives. Um, all right, so let's look at the text. Um, here we go. Verse 1. Everyone, and just notice, the Christian faith is not excluding anyone. Everyone. The Christian faith is saying, if you put your faith in Jesus, then you can be a child of God. It doesn't matter to me what your, your gender is. It doesn't matter to me what your previous religion is. It doesn't matter to me what your socioeconomic status is. It doesn't matter to me if you're rich or poor or white or black or whatever. Everyone. So, everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ, here it is, has been born of God. Notice the tenses of the verbs. It's very important that you can see even here. This has been born precedes belief. He says everyone who believes, so if I have a present belief right now, it means that I have been born of God. So we can see there. And the reason why that's important, the reason why regeneration happening before, this, this act of God working in your, on your behalf to for you to respond in faith, that has to happen first, is because it excludes boasting. If you just say, well, I, I, I found out of my own volition this faith in God and He doesn't do the first act of, of regeneration in your life, well, then that means you're just smart enough and you have reason to boast. In Ephesians 2, it's very clear that we have no reason to boast, that all the glory and our salvation, all the honor and worship is due to Jesus not to us, because He has always been the first act in our salvation. And we are the recipients of that. And this is, this is good news for us, because we are sinners, and we would not choose Him. <laughs> we would choose our own way, which we have. But His graciousness comes and regenerates us, and faith happens, and He gets all the glory for it. So it's important that we know that all the worship is supposed to go to Him. So, um, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God... Now notice the links that he's making. So when you've been born of God, everyone who loves the Father 
And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So here's, here's the first action. Regeneration always begets faith. That just means gives birth to. Um, my wife beget, begetted our children, or whatever you want to say. Um, she gave birth to our four kids. So regeneration always begets faith. But we don't stop there, because verse 1 doesn't stop there. We're not just going to say regeneration begets faith. We're going to go more, because John's going more to us. Regeneration always begets faith, which, when that happens, begets a love for the people of God. When you're regenerated, faith happens, and you put your faith in Jesus. And when you put your faith in Jesus, this is the main part of this, of this point, it always begets a love for the people of God. Now, it's tricky here because we can, we can start thinking in human terms. Um, some of you might know parents um, that have children in which you, you have affections of love and care and you, you like the parents. But the children, mm, <laughs> not so much. You know, they kind of get on your... I have four and I'm, I'm absolutely positive that when mine are maybe running insane and driving people crazy, that I'm, I'm hoping at least that people might like me. But when they, my children are running crazy, they're like, you know... Fudd, Christy, good guy, nice girl. Children, uh, a little bit on my nerves. A little bit on my nerves. And it's, it's easy for us as, as, as humans to think in a human way that this is how it works. But this isn't how it works when it comes to God. All right, don't confuse our human thoughts towards human parents and their wicked little sinning children towards God the Father and His redeemed children. All right? If you love God... You must love his children. That's just what the point. You always. Regeneration begets faith, which always begets a love for his children. So we won't ever hear phrases like, we should never hear phrases like, yeah, I'm cool with Jesus, but I don't really like the church. Um, The people in the church are a bunch of hypocrites, and I'm a Christian, but I just don't like them. You can't love Jesus and hate his wife. It doesn't happen. If you are in love with Jesus, if He is your Savior, then you have to have, faith begets a love for His children. Always. So, um, I'm skipping some of my notes here where I I know I nailed down some of the regeneration stuff for you. Um, You can't say, or let's say it this way, a a commenter about 500 years ago said this. Um, He said, since God regenerates us by faith, He must necessarily be loved by us as a father. So if he regenerates us, then we naturally have a a deep affectionate love for him as father. And then it says, and this love embraces all his children. Faith and love are always integrated. The fact that you have been saved and you put your faith in Jesus means you have to love his children. Now, practically this means for you, day to day, when there are people, and I know sometimes it's easier honestly, to love unbelievers than it is to love believers. Because you expect, you know, an unbeliever is going to sin. (laughs) And a Christian's not supposed to. And when a Christian sins against me, I I find it difficult to have affections for them. But practically what this means when it works out is this. Your roommate, your parents, whoever, um, if they are a believer, you can't find yourself being frustrated with them and having a, a growing dislike and a growing hatred for them. You have to, because they are God's children just like you, love them. You have to have a love 
for them. And look what verse 2 says. By this we know, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. I'm going to stop here because first we're supposed to think when we hear that, isn't it supposed to be the opposite? Like, that doesn't sound right. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Isn't it supposed to say by this we know that we love God when we love the children of God? Loving the children of God is born out of a love of God. And notice what he connects it to after this in verse 2, which is going to take us to our second point. He connects it to obedience to his commandments. Loving God, loving other people, is connected to obedience. Look at this in verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Obey His commandments. Now, some of you that have been with us for some time, when we went through Galatians, um, when we first started, when you hear that, you're kind of thinking, wait a second, um, commandments, law, I'm not under the law anymore. I'm no longer under law, but under grace. So therefore, this, this thought to, of me to say, I have to be under commandments. I have to be obedient to commandments. I have to be under law. Sounds like you're contradicting what you said when you said it in Galatians. I'm supposed to not be under law anymore, but under grace. That's the law over there, by the way. This is grace. And I'm supposed to be under grace anymore. Law is not something I have to think about, do, or anymore, because that's not right. What I'm saying is this. All right, I want to be really careful here. I want you to understand that the, what the role of the law in the life of the believer is. And I think I've answered this a lot of times, but let's hear this. All right, This is really important. The role of the law. If you want to follow Christ, or let's say this. If you want to go to heaven, you can go two routes. You can say, what the one route is, I'm going to follow every single law in the Bible perfectly. And if I do that, then if I never sin and I obey every single commandment ever given to me, then I'll have right standing with God because I've never sinned, and then I'm going to go to heaven. Or I can follow Jesus, who has obeyed every single commandment for me, and I can say all of his righteousness, all of his obedience is going to be counted as mine, and all of my sin, all of my punishment that I deserve because I sin, is going to be, has been put on him because of the cross. I have two options here. Well, The only option for salvation is the second, because none of us will ever obey his commandments perfectly. None of us. So if that's the case, then when you're saying, okay, we're no longer under law because we can't keep it, but we're under grace. It's the fact that Jesus in his grace has kept the commandments for us. So why why all this talk about obeying commandments? Well, obeying commandments is not for the purpose of justification. Justification just means to be declared righteous. We don't keep these commandments in order to have a right standing with God because that's impossible. So we put our faith in Jesus in order to be counted righteous. But after we put our faith in Jesus and now we've been justified, now that we've been declared righteous, the commandments are not just some kind of throwaway thing. They are now for us as we are 100% justified, 100% righteous in front of God's eyes. These commandments are now things that we see and we look at And we obey because as we obey them, we get to reflect back to Jesus. Love for Him. 
the fact that I keep these things, you want me to do those things. You don't want me to sleep with other people. You don't want me to lie. You don't want me to steal. You want me to love other people. There's a lot of commandments given to us. And if I do those things, then that means you are pleased with me. As a matter of fact, not only am I going to do those things to make you pleased with me, because I'm already, you're already pleased with me. I'm going to do those things because it gives me joy to obey you. So that's how it's linked. Obedience to commandments is not for the purpose of justification. Obedience to the commandments is for the purpose of reflecting back to Jesus a love for him. All right, so that's key. So that means love of God is not at odds with the law. Boyce, James Boyce, a commentator, said this, Love, divorced from obedience to the commands of God, is not love. So if we love God, we will keep his commandments. So this is how I want to say this whole idea is the second the second action is this regeneration means you pursue holiness via keeping the commandments, because I want to say it more positively. I don't want to say regeneration means you keep commandments because it just sounds like a big legalist throwing out law at you and you have to obey these rules and they're rules. I don't want you to think that way. I want you to think I'm pursuing holiness. Pursuing holiness means I love God so much for the cross that out of love for him, I want to pursue what has already been declared of me. What's been declared of me is that I'm holy. I'm righteous. I'm blameless. I'm innocent before him. So I want to pursue that. Philippians 3.16 says, "Let let us only hold true to what we've already attained. We've already attained holiness. We've already attained righteousness. So let us hold true to that. So we want to, regenerations means we pursue holiness. Now remember, this is not an evidence. This is not a, since you've been um, wondering if you're a Christian, since you've been wondering, then you can look at your life and say, oh, am I pursuing holiness? Yes, I am. Okay, I'm, I'm saved. This is, you are a Christian. You know you are. So action means pursue holiness. This is not a, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. I'm looking at it to see if I am. This is, you and I are Christians. We pursue holiness. That's what we do. All right. Now, there's a statement that John says that is absolutely kind of breathtaking at first read. It's breathtaking at first read. Look what he says. Um, we know that we love God. When, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. So we show that we have affectionate love for God when we keep His commandments. And look what he says. And His commandments are not burdensome. Wow. That's kind of breathtaking. Because whenever I think of the whole of the commandments and keeping them, it is a bit overwhelming. It, it seems like that is, that is difficult. That is, that is burdensome. <laughs> that seems like I don't know that I can do that. Now, here's my question. Does this mean that total obedience to all the commandments of God are an easy thing to achieve? Is that what he's saying when he says these commandments aren't burdensome? They're easy they're, they're an easy thing to achieve. Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's saying. And there's kind of two reasons I want to say. Um, first is kind of first century. 
And the second one is first century and applicable to us. Let me tell you the first century one. First century one. Um, First century is this. The Pharisees at the time were kind of uh, this religious group that took the commandments in the Old Testament and said, okay, we want to obey these things. So what we're going to do is we're going to add on some extra things to make sure we don't obey, we don't disobey those things. In other words, okay, there's a commandment to keep the Sabbath. The, the commandment to keep the Sabbath, one of the things in, this, in the law is we're not to walk a mile. So just to make sure we're not going to walk a mile, we're going to make an extra law that says don't walk half a mile. So if we keep that, we'll certainly keep the other. And so there's an extra law stacked on. And so they, they did this with, with multiple things. They just stacked on all these extra laws. And that becomes extremely burdensome. And Jesus is kind of addressing this first century idea of Pharisees where they're saying, um, you've, been, you've been loaded down with these, with these laws. And listen, um, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's, that's from Matthew 11. That's the first century thing is... Um, my laws are not burdensome compared to the Pharisees. But here's the second thing. And I really think that it's, it's shown to us in that same verse 3. Um, look at verse 3 one more time. And it says, and this is, the, this is the most important part of it, is that first phrase. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. So love of God is really key in understanding how to obey His commandments and think they're not burdensome. Love of God. Listen to this. Um, now that we have new life from God, now that He has regenerated us by faith and we have, we have grasped onto eternal life and all of our sins have been forgiven, now that we have spiritual life, now that we've been born of God, we should love Him. That's what He's saying. There should be an obvious love. Therefore, whenever we love someone who has given us life, someone who has saved us from wretched, wretched, horrible eternal conscious torment, hell. He saved us from that. We have this natural affections of love for Him. There's just no way we can conceive of not loving God if He saved us from such a, a horrible thing. So based on that, this, this love of God makes all the difference in wanting to obey the commandments and not think of them as burdensome. Um, there's a guy named uh, Barclay. Uh, he, he wrote a comment on this, and it sounds kind of like Yoda whenever he says it. So just get your Yoda thinking cap on, and that just means you, you put your, your, your direct object in the beginning of the sentence. So here it goes. Um, Difficult the commandments of Christ are, burdensome they are not. Um, so <laughs> Difficult the commandments of Christ are. So the, the commandments of Christ are difficult. Yes. Burdensome? They're not. For Christ never laid a commandment on a man without giving him the strength to carry it out. Well, that's, that's pretty awesome. Not a commandment has ever been given to you as a follower of Jesus that he hasn't also given you the strength, namely the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I'm having a lot of trouble talking today. Um, carrying this commandment out further. And every commandment, this is a, <laughs> I love this statement. Barclay has got to be one of the most optimistic people I've ever heard because generally when I think of commandments, I think of ones that I break and how just awful I feel. and like, oh, there's such a weight. I can't do it. I feel so awful. I'm so pessimistic. Ugh, and I'm driven down to the ground. But this is what he says here. This is what he says. He thinks of commandments as opportunities. Listen to this. Every commandment that is laid upon us provides another chance 
to show our love to him. That is the most optimistic way to look at commandments. Oh, another one. If I obey that, I get to show more love to him because I obeyed it. That's a pretty awesome way to think about the commandments. So as we think about it, first of all, he is not going to give you something that he hasn't given you the strength to obey. So as you look at the commandments, and you think they're so horrible. They're so hard. I can't do it. Well, he's given you the strength if you're a believer to follow it out. And not only every commandment is another opportunity for you to obey. Now, what I want to do here, um, ask a question, do a little exercise and give you an answer. Ask the question, do a little exercise, give you the answer. Here's ask the question. Why then do we find ourselves pursuing righteousness? Why do we find that so burdensome? Why do we find that so burdensome? Let's do the exercise. Let's let's let you see. This is just a couple places. Let's let you see some of the commandments. Because I I think that maybe some of you know them if you've been in church. But some of you might not have any church background at all. So let me let you see some of the some of the commandments. And then you can start thinking, okay, that is a little bit, that sounds a little bit burdensome. I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments and a brief synopsis of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. One of the, one of the sermons that Jesus preached in Matthew 5-7. through So here, here are the Ten Commandments. And then the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives some new commandments. Where he kind of says, oh, you've heard the Ten Commandments? And here's what I mean. Alright, this is it. Have no other gods. So we can't worship anybody else. Have no other idols. We can't worship things that we kind of create in our, in our, with ourselves. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Those first four about God and our relationship with Him. You're supposed to do those things. You're supposed to Sabbath. You're not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain. You're not supposed to have other gods or other idols or worship other things in front of Jesus. The other ones, honor your father and mother. You're supposed to honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Hopefully no one has that, been doing that. Do not commit adultery. Hopefully no one's doing that. Do not steal. Probably you do that in different forms. Do not lie. Do not covet. Well, that's a lot of stuff. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, um, he kind of takes those things and he explains what they even mean more. And I'm just going to kind of go through this fast. Don't be angry with your brother. That's what he tells us in Matthew 5.22. Um, Matthew 5.24, there's a commandment to reconcile with your brother if you're estranged from him. If you and your brother have something between you, you're commanded to go make it right. Not just kind of let it sit out there and hopefully it'll all take care of itself or just pretend like it's not there. You're commanded and I'm commanded to go make it right. Um, another place uh, in Matthew five twenty eight, do not lust after a woman. Taking from the, that commandment of don't commit adultery, he says you shouldn't even lust after women. And women, you should not lust after men. You shouldn't have if-only lists um, in your marriage, if only he would be able to do this, then I would be, or if only she would look like this or do this, then I, you shouldn't have if only lists. Um, do not divorce, Matthew 5.31. Do not take an oath, Matthew 5.36. Um, Matthew 5.38 through 5.41 basically says, if people are evil, you're supposed to reach out to them. Go the extra mile. Give them your cloak. You're supposed to reach out to people who are evil. That's a commandment. Um, Give to the needy, Matthew 5.42. If you have a stingy little heart, you're not supposed to. You're supposed to find those people who are needy and you're commanded in this sermon to give to them. So what's your life look like in, in, in um, giving out? Or is it just, I'm going to collect more stuff, I'm going to buy more stuff, I'm going to have more stuff? Um, 
You're supposed to love your enemies and pray for them in Matthew 5.44. Those who are opposed to you, you're supposed to love them and pray for them. He has commanded you to pray for your enemies. How often are we fulfilling that command? You're supposed to pray, just in general. The Lord's Prayer is in there in Matthew 6, 5-15. And it is a command and an assumption that you are going to pray. How are you doing in that? Just the fact that you're praying. Another one in Matthew 6, 16-18 is that you're supposed to fast. When you fast. There's an assumption that you will fast. And this doesn't just have to be from food. It can be from other things. But there's an assumption that you will take times throughout the year where you focus just on Jesus. You fast from worldly pleasures and feast on Jesus. Another one in Matthew 6. And I'm not even going to go into 7. Matthew 7 just gets crazy. You are not supposed to be anxious. He tells you, do not be anxious. Alright, so that's a lot. That's a big exercise. Back to the question. Um, Why do we so often find ourselves... Um, that pursuing righteousness adds very, very burdensome. And here's the answer, I think. Here's the answer. John, and he wrote, when he wrote in the Gospels, says this twice, and I think this is the answer for us. Let me read these two verses to you. One's John 14, 15. One's John 15, 10. He says this. If you love me, and it's the same thing that we saw in John 5, 3. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Should we find it burdensome to do things, good things, for those that we love? Should we find it burdensome to do things for those that we love? So here is why I think we find it burdensome. It's because I think quite often we forget what we've been saved from. I think we forget how much sin has been forgiven. Let me read you a little story in Matthew 7 really fast. There's a woman who um, heard Jesus was in town. I think there are commentators that go both ways, but a lot of commentators will say she had already had an encounter with Jesus. I think she had already had an encounter with Jesus, had already been forgiven of her sins, had heard that Jesus was in town, and all she could do is... Go worship. That's all she wanted to do is go worship. Jesus goes into the house. They didn't anoint his head with oil. They didn't clean his feet. They didn't do the things that sacramentally or uh, socially they were supposed to do. And so uh, Jesus is having lunch with this guy named Simon, who was a Pharisee. And Simon didn't do these things. And so um, Simon sees this this woman. She's kind of a sinner. And everybody knows she's a sinner. More than likely she was a prostitute in the city. That's what I think she was. Um, this prostitute in the city, they're sitting at the table, kind of comes up behind Jesus and comes up to his feet. Now, notice all the things that weren't done. They didn't pour oil on his head. They didn't kiss him on the cheek. They didn't clean his feet and wash his feet. This woman comes up, and as Jesus is having um, dinner with Simon and all the people who are trying to catch him in sin and trying to trap him and, and, and scenarios, this woman comes up to Jesus and starts doing the things that the servant should have done. Starts cleaning his feet with her hair, starts crying so much that she's washing his feet, anoints his feet, and starts kissing his feet. All this is going on. And Simon, the Pharisee, is looking at Jesus and thinking to himself, oh man, if Jesus, he's thinking it to himself, if Jesus just knew what kind of ridiculously awful, sinful, disgusting woman this was, certainly he would not let her be all over his feet like that. And so Jesus who has this amazing gift, which I wish I had, reads his mind and knows his thoughts and says, Hey, Simon, I want to tell you a story. 
Um, Because, you know, you want to talk about stuff. Let me tell you a little story. Simon has no idea what the story is about, has no idea that it's going to pertain to the woman and these these kind of thoughts that he had about this sinful woman. He goes, I got a story for you. Um, Let's say a money lender owes or a money lender is giving out some money to a couple of people. He gives one guy and he's going to change it to 21st century, five hundred bucks or five hundred dollars and gives the other guy 50. Um, And then neither one of them. Here's the key. Neither one of them can pay it back. Now, when we think about $500 and $50, or actually the word was denarii, day's wage, we think, oh, that's easy to pay back. 500 bucks, I can do that. I can make that in a week. Let's, let's amp it up. Um, one, he loans one guy $500 million, and he loans the other guy uh, $5 million, whatever. Like, it's just something insane that neither, none of us really could probably pay back unless we're Bill Gates. You just can't pay it back. He loans... All that money to both of them. And they are unable to pay it back. Key point. And then they're just enslaved to this guy. They know that they're enslaved to this guy. They fear this guy. And he, the money lender comes up and he goes, You and you, you, you both owe me. I'm canceling both the debts. I'm canceling both the debts. And then he, he looks at Simon and he says, Simon, who's going who's gonna to love Jesus? Who's going to love the money lender more? Who's going to appreciate that more? And Simon's like, uh, The guy that had the bigger debt canceled, I guess. And he goes, you're right. And then he says, look at this woman. Look at this woman. And I'm picking up here. He goes, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. She gave, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now, he, he's, he's bringing that story and this whole scenario straight into Simon. And, and I think our hearts to knowing what it means to love God and keep His commandments. And look at this. And he says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, which are many, are forgiven. So he's saying, all of us have this enormous debt, greater than we could ever repay. And if we could just understand the weight of the sin that was on our shoulders before Jesus... And when we ask forgiveness and all that's gone, look what he says. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. So the point is, none of us are forgiven little. Every one of us are this huge debt. We, none of us, we think sometimes, oh, I've just done a little bit of sin, so surely I'm the smaller debt. No, all of us have done the greatest debt. All of our sin has, has cast us out into the most wicked frame. And all of it's been forgiven. And if we can realize all of that's been forgiven, well, then this, te- this story is telling us, then we will love much. So when we think about the commandments, we think about them being burdensome. The reason why I think we find them burdensome is because sometimes we have a little bit higher view of ourselves than we should. I'm not saying that you should throw yourself on, off into some depression and think you're the worst person all the time and that you have no hope. Of course, the fact that Jesus is in you has redeemed you. But if we have a right perspective of where we were before Christ and that he saved us, well, then obedience to his commandments, we have a deep love for him because he's a, he saved us from so much, then we want to follow these commandments. We won't find these commandments burdensome because of the love that we have for him and what he's done for us. So... As we think about sometimes keeping these commandments and they seem to be so hard, if we would remember how much we've been forgiven, you don't have to be told. You don't have to be told how to love someone and how to do good things for them. 
No one has to tell me, oh, what you should do for your wife because you love her is do these things. I know the things that she wants me to do. And I love her and I want to do them. You don't have to tell someone who loves someone how to do good things. Maybe you have to give some applications here and there. But you shouldn't find doing good things for people you love burdensome. You should find them joy. So when you love him, keeping the commandments isn't a burden. It's a joy. All right, so we're going into this last thing. And, and as I said, he, he re, um, kind of repeats this word overcomes here. And so let's look at this. Four, verse four. For everyone who has been born of God, notice there it is again, overcomes the world. So now regeneration means overcoming the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Regeneration and faith being tied together. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Here's the third one. Regeneration. Regeneration means you have overcome the world. Now that is a great, glorious statement. That should, that should blow you away. If you are in Christ, you have overcome the world. Now, I want to give you just from one verse in 1 John what that can look like. Now, it can mean, it can mean more than this. But let me let you see, just from 1 John, what this can mean that you've overcome. Look at 1 John 2, 16. 2, 16. These are some things that in Christ, being regenerated, you've already overcome. Look at this. For all that is in the world, here it is, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions. Whenever you feel feeling selfish and you want things... The desires of the flesh have already been overcome. The desires of the eyes, whenever you feel lust towards things. In Christ, those things have been overcome. The pride of possessions, whenever you feel pride coming up and you feel like you've accomplished something and you don't want to give God the glory or you're being really prideful in admitting your sin or you're being really prideful in submitting to authority or you're being really prideful in serving your spouse or your friend. Pride and possessions has already been overcome. This is just one little peek at the things that have been overcome. If we look at the whole of the scripture, we could examine a ton, which we don't have time. But in Christ, regeneration means that you have overcome the world. Um, One commentator says, this removes fear and animates us or gives us life now to fight with courage that we have overcome the world. The fact that we have overcome the world means that because of Jesus, we are already partakers of victory. And this, um, this defeat is no longer on us anymore, but we now are conquerors over the world. This confidence that we have now, here's the thing. The fact that I've already told you, in Christ, now that you're regenerated, you've already overcome it. These, these verbs are saying that it's, it's present tense. It's already happened. Even though you um, know that you're going to sin, the truth is that you've already overcome the world it's all done (laughs) that should not give you like reason to say well all right then i'm just going to kind of cruise through life then he says this confidence in knowing that we've overcome the world does not however introduce indifference it doesn't mean that we can just set it in cruise control and kind of go through life now it doesn't introduce indifference but um, he says renders us always anxiously intent on fighting since it's already true, then you should fight. This is what I mean. Um, my dad, growing up, was terrible at video games. Horrible. Horrible. 
But sometimes he would want to come in and play. I guess he just felt like, oh, I got you know, to hang out with the son. I got to go play with him and stuff like that. And so I'd say, hey, let's play a video game. Before we started, I knew that I was going to crush him. I mean, there was, he had no chance. But I didn't do this. I didn't say, well, you know, I'm already going to beat you. I don't even want to play you. I loved just crushing him so bad. I would say, let's play the game. Let's get it on. And I'm going to destroy you. And so we would play the game and I would destroy him. But I wanted to do it. Like, I, I didn't just say, ah, oh, whatever. I don't even want to play. I know I'm going to crush you. I wanted to do the deal. I wanted to have the fun of crushing him. That's the absolute same thing. It's already true. You've already overcome. But it doesn't mean you just kind of remove yourself away and say, ah, oh, whatever. No, you still jump in and you fight like crazy. You enjoy going through life, seeing sin get defeated and seeing having victory and overcoming Satan's sin and death. You still jump in and you do it anyway. Because it's already yours doesn't mean you stop and don't do it. It says that it anxiously makes us more intent in fighting. So, but the reason why we do that, it says that we have overcome the world because of our faith. This faith means a real apprehension of Christ, an effectual laying hold on him by which we apply his power now to ourselves. So we can do that because we have faith, because the Holy Spirit has been given to us. We have the power of Jesus living in us. And that's how we're going to always be overcoming. So... In conclusion, Cameron, you can go ahead and come out. This is what I want to, want to kind of conclude with is this. I want you to notice the bookends again. And this is how we're going to conclude. Look at the bookends. And that means verse 1 and verse 5. And he's going to tell us. There's two summation statements. They almost say the same thing. But I want you to see them. Verse 1, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Two exhortations, two, two thoughts, two bookends there. Belief in Jesus the Christ, belief in Jesus as the Son of God, saying the same thing. So here's my, here's my hope for you. Here's my exhortation to you. Here's my advice. Here's my conclusion. This is what all of you need to do, Christian and non-Christian. We all have the same conclusion. We all have the same challenge before us. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Je that Jesus is the Christ. He is the conqueror. He is the overcomer. He is the, the means by which you will always see victory over sin. He is the one that will give you the love to pursue holiness. He is the one that has already made you be regenerated, given you faith, and given you a love for His children. For those of you that are not in Christ, believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God. Believe the fact that He put Himself on the cross for you, for your forgiveness. And if you would put your faith in Him, if you would believe in Him today, then you will receive eternal life. You will be forgiven for all of your sin. And the victory is yours. You don't have to run down the commandment route anymore, running on the treadmill, which you never, receive, you never get to the end. You can walk over here to Christ, and all of the righteousness is now applied to you. And all of your sin and all of your punishment was put on Him, and you are completely forgiven. All of us have the same challenge. Belief in Jesus isn't just some kind of one-time event that we happens at beginning of salvation and then we move on to the spiritual things. It's, it is the gospel that we need every day. We believe in God to be saved, to be justified, 
and we keep believing Jesus is the Son of God and that He's declared us righteous through this thing called sanctification, through this thing of becoming more like Him for the rest of our life. And that will help you love the children of God. That will ensure that you love the children of God. That will ensure that you pursue holiness. That will ensure in your mind, I have overcome the world. Holiness is mine. Love for other people is mine. If I want to summarize this sermon, it can summarize into two quick statements. I could have done this at the very beginning. We could have been done. But I didn't. Love of God means you love other people. Love of God means you obey His commandments. We're going to go into a time of worship. And I just want to encourage you, wherever you are, we do things maybe a little bit differently here at Remedy than than you're used to. Um, We put the majority of our worship after the sermon because we believe in revelation and response, that God has revealed to us Um, His truth through His Word, and we want to respond through worship after that. So we have kind of a longer set after. So there'll be some songs here where if you need to think and pray and meditate, I want you to be able to do that. I want you to be able to think, pray, meditate, cry out to God, ask for belief, be able to come down here and talk to me if you need prayer, if you want to put Christ as, as number one, if you want to ask Jesus to be your Savior, you can do that now. If you want to think and pray, and then after a song or a half a song, then stand up and sing the rest of the songs with us and just proclaim to Jesus your love affections for Him, then we want you to do that. However, the Holy Spirit is leading you now. You've got time. You've got time to respond. And we want you to do that. I'm going to pray and turn over, the, turn over this time to Cameron. Um, and he'll lead us in worship through song. If you need to talk, I'll be right here. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us and... Being born as a child of God is an amazing thought for which we are eternally grateful. So God, I thank you that you have regenerated us in order to make us lovers of you. You've regenerated us so that we can now love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So that now we can pursue holiness. So that now, Father, it's a constant reminder that we have overcome the world. And that going through life is, is going to be not burdensome. Killing sin will happen. What a joy. What a joy. Be with us now as we worship. Give us inexpressible joy, Father. Give us, give us real love affections for Jesus as we stand and sing. Move us. We pray this in Jesus' name.